0: The information and opinions presented in this Arc Energy Ideas podcast are provided for informational purposes only and are subject to the disclaimer link in the show notes.
1: This is the Arc Energy Ideas podcast with Peter Tertzakian and Jackie Forrest, exploring trends that influence the energy business. Welcome to the Arc Energy Ideas podcast. I'm Jackie Forrest,
0: and I'm Peter Terzaki, And While we're back in studio, still socially distanced, Jackie, I see you're still—I don't know—a good two meters as we're supposed to be in front of me on this yeah, long table in the studio. So we are back. Hey, you watched the presidential debates?
1: Oh yeah, I was there. Seven o'clock, right in, right in oh, front yeah. of it. Yeah, so and, you... and I couldn't stop watching because it's kind of like a train wreck once you get get watching know. it. It's hard to pull yourself
0: away. Yeah. Oh, I didn't have that problem because I didn't watch it. I. Didn't feel the need to relive my kindergarten years. So anyway, (laughs)
1: that was probably a good idea.
0: (laughs) Those are two hours you're not going to get back, Jackie. That's right. But anyway, hey, speaking of politics, we have a special guest today. And our special guest is the Honorable Sonia Savage, Minister of Energy for Alberta. Welcome, Minister.
1: Well, thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Welcome, Minister Savage. It's great to have you on our podcast. And first, I want to thank you for your leadership and public service. I know this is not an mm-hmm. easy time, and we really appreciate you making some time to talk to us and, and for our listeners to hear what you have to say.
0: Yes. Thank you very much. Thank so, you. Yeah. Well, we've got lots to talk about. Um, the oil market crisis, the throne speech. What else are we talking about, Jackie?
1: Market access. Yeah. And uh, future vision for Alberta. So we'd like to hear from yeah. you on, and some of the new things that the uh, Alberta government's working on around energy.
0: Yeah, perfect. So maybe before we get started, though, for the benefit of our audience, Minister, maybe you tell us a little bit about yourself before you came to office and uh, how you got into politics.
2: Well, sure. It's, uh, I guess I've been now in this position, been elected for about a year and a half. Some days it feels like a decade. So much has, has happened in, in that short period of time. But I guess before politics, I spent 13 years in the pipeline industry, almost 13 years, with background in LLM, Masters of Law in Environment and Energy, specializing in energy regulation. And why did I run? I guess uh, through the years working in the industry, I saw the impact, the devastating impact, not only to the industry, but but to the province, of some of the challenges with market access, with uh, the anti fossil fuel conversation, I thought I could bring some experience to the table. And I guess little little known to me and fortunate for me that I was given the portfolio of energy. So, you know, it seems like a decade ago, reflecting over the last year and a half when I started, first we were dealing with a lot of issues related to market access and the inability to get pipelines built, things like curtailment, the crude by rail deal from the previous government. Uh, Bill C-69 and Bill Bill C-48, I thought at the beginning of this year, we were making a lot of progress on market access. We were getting pipelines built. Trans Mountain was underway. We had had some important decisions in the Supreme Court to give us a path forward on uh, the duty to consult. But then we had the price collapse. The COVID Mm -hmm. hit with the price collapse when our focus shifted from from some of the things we had worked on in the early part of our mandate to looking at uh, production shut-ins, storage filling, OPEC meetings.
1: Well, you certainly did hit the ground running, and and you had that background to be able to do that, so we're fortunate for that. We're going to talk about some of these topics that you just mentioned, but let's talk a bit about the oil market crisis. While oil prices have recovered, $40 is still a challenging price level, and I know you've been maintaining an active dialogue with the industry and that's been greatly appreciated. What are you hearing? How are companies coping at this stage?
2: Well, I think you know, and I, I have spoken to most of our most of our companies throughout this and series of roundtables. I think at the beginning we we were averaging about 130 meetings a month with uh, producers in the oil service sector. So I know it's been a very very challenging time for them, and particularly because they've been through a number of years of low cost environment and not having market access and we're following the quarterly results of all these companies as they come out and uh, I think it's no surprise to anyone on how their share value has collapsed. We're seeing uh, a real tough go for the service sector, for the drillers. They're very much struggling but uh, we're keeping on top of that and I know we've got a resilient industry here. The history of, of oil dating back to 1859, I think it was, was a whole history of challenges of price ups and downs and we have a resilient sector and I think we mm-hmm. uh, I think there's reason for optimism.
0: Well there was a lot of pain and still is actually across many industries whether it's airlines and the hospitality the oil and gas and the federal government came out with the wage subsidy program which was very broad based but there were some specific programs with respect to the oil and gas industry, the abandonment program, methane reduction, short-term lending programs for producers. Can you talk a little bit about those and how you feel now, six months on, those are working?
2: Yeah, well, we're hearing a lot that it's still challenging for a lot of our companies to get uh, access to those EDC and BDC loans. There's been uh, They've been slow and there's been some some challenges. But we've also heard that the wage subsidy has been very very helpful. It's kept a lot of companies uh, going, particularly in the drilling and service sectors. And the SRP program, the site rehabilitation program, that we've stood up with the uh, billion-dollar funding from from the federal government has been very, very helpful. It's been a lifeline for some of the uh, smaller companies, Mm -hmm. particularly the companies in the regions. I know it's been slower getting out, getting it rolled out than what what any of us would have would have wanted to but now we've got over 200 million i think it was 220 million dollars that's been awarded so far so we're actually seeing work out in the field and we're it's a two year program and we've got about 20 25% of it out the door so we're we're seeing some progress there
0: Yeah these things they they do take time and what about the methane reduction We're
2: not a whole lot on on that, and then, I mean, while there's some a loan coming from that, I, we're we're seeing this as as a, one of those areas from the federal government that we, we want to tell them do no harm. We're going through enough already, and we do see some some significant headwinds coming from the federal government.
1: So, do you anticipate any additional COVID-related help either from the federal or provincial government at this stage?
2: We certainly, from the province we won't let our energy sector fail. So we, we uh, have not stood up a program yet for loans, but uh, we're waiting to see where the federal loans go. But we certainly will not let our energy sector fail.
1: I'm sure a lot of folks in the industry are, are happy to hear that they'll have that support. Let's switch gears, uh, talking about the federal government a little bit more around the throne speech. Uh, last week, as you know, the federal throne speech occurred, and we wanted to get your take on it.
2: Well, I guess I've read through it several times and that what struck me, and I'm one for counting, but they, they, the word energy was in the, the throne speech. I think it's a total of seven times. But of those seven times, five of it is related to uh, renewable, clean energy, and uh, not once did they say the word oil and gas or oil sands. They didn't say it once. So the entire energy sector when it's talked about in the throne speech, was spoken to as an accelerator for climate change. That's what, to them, the energy sector means. And that's what's so disappointing for Alberta. Because we don't look at our energy, our oil and gas sector, as being just an accelerator to climate change. We look at it as a means to provide energy, stuff to heat our homes, to provide transportation to get to work, to get our kids to school, to improve our lives, to give us jobs, to give us prosperity. And it's very disappointing when the only way, the only thing that the federal liberals could say about the oil and gas sector is that it's a useful means to energy transition. So mm-hmm. we, we took that as quite a insult to Albertans and the men and women who work in the oil and gas sector.
0: Well, the industry certainly is a... Uh A vital part of the economy still. I mean, I look at the numbers, and in this most downturn of years, the industry revenue is still going to be about $75 billion, which still makes it one of the largest, if not the largest. Industry in the country, depending upon how you classify an industry. So it is, it is really vital. And, uh, that's not going to go away for a long time. We've talked about that on this podcast before. But what we did hear in the throne speech was, you know, the more talk about the net zero by 2050, not only oil and gas, but just sort of broad based into the economy. Uh, we know the companies in our oil and gas industry, many of the big ones have made stated goals too achieve net zero by 2050, the province of Newfoundland as a whole has agreed to. Like, what do you think uh, Alberta's stance is going to be? Or how how are you thinking about net zero by 2050 within the industry and then more broadly in the province?
2: I guess, you know, I guess I would approach it two ways. First way is, well, what is realistic? Uh, What is realistic? And second, I approach this in terms of whose jurisdiction it is between federal and provincial jurisdiction the point on on what's realistic, I guess I should start with this saying, you know yes, we we all want to see, including Alberta, we want want to see progress on uh, transitioning to lower sources of emitting energy, whether that's uh, in reducing uh, the emissions from oil and gas, or whether it's in bringing in a larger mix of renewable and non emitting energy. But right now, nobody has seemed to put forward a credible pathway on how to get to net zero. The technologies that we need to get there are a long way off. Whether it's uh, hydrogen or batteries or small modular reactors, carbon capture—like the, the the way to get there—is a long ways off, and it's going to take time. Any sort of, and I think you've spoken lots about this, Peter, on on how long energy transitions will take. So we have to start with what's realistic if we're going to talk about whether and how and when we can get to net zero. Mm. But second point, which is every bit as important, is whose uh, constitutional jurisdiction it is. And when the federal government talks about getting to net zero and, and bringing the, the provinces to net zero, they have to understand that it starts with the province. It's our constitutional authority over natural resources and, and oil and gas. And it has been for a very long time. And its I, I'm a little bit of a, a constitutional mm. nerd. Over 150 years um, of, of the constitution since Canada was a confederation, it's just so clear that the uh, provincial ownership and jurisdiction over natural resources gives us uh, authority mm. in the area. And there's been key moments over the last 150 years that have not only confirmed it, but expanded on it from 1982, the section 92A amendment is as clear as can be.
0: Let's you know talk about this constitutional thing. And, you know, I don't claim to be any sort of constitutional expert, but I do know that provinces in this country have jurisdiction over the resources and the federal government has jurisdiction over the environment and that there's always been this sort of tension between those two dimensions, because of course resources and environment overlap so much in terms of sustainability issues. And so it's not just an Alberta issue, is it? I mean, it's a, it's sort of a cross-Canada issue.
2: Well, in the Section 92A Amendment, and it's a recent constitutional amendment from 1982, and it's what got us the, the repatriation of the Constitution and the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, it was a term of of provinces signing on to that was a reaffirmation of the exclusive jurisdiction of the provinces in regard to development management of our and production of our natural resources. And if that wasn't enough to solidify that this is exclusive constitutional jurisdiction, 38 added on at the same time, which gives the provinces an opt-out. If a future amendment interfered with that, mm-hmm. um, the provinces could opt out of that amendment. So it's crystal clear that this is an area of provincial jurisdiction that needs to be respected.
1: So, Minister, I want to go back to your comments around net zero is going to take a while and we don't know how we're going to get there. On the positive side of the throne speech, you know, it did mention help for industry, including the natural resources sector, to transform to meet net zero future. I thought, you know, could this be an area of future collaboration? You talk about things like hydrogen and, and um, you know, CCS, for example. They're going to take billions of dollars of investment. And could this be an area where we could work together and that would drive jobs and, and economic growth here in Alberta and h- get help from the federal government?
2: Yeah, there, there definitely are areas that we, we can and we are working together with the, the federal government. And I think you, you hit on some of them with uh, hydrogen, geothermal, Mines and mineral strategy, things to, that we can uh, access to resources like lithium, vanadium, and uranium. Mineral resources that are used in, in clean tech, as well as small modular reactors. So there are a lot of uh, areas of of uh, collaboration with the, the federal government. And we know that there's going to be more investment in the decades to come and a growing interest in these areas. And we want to be able to attract that investment to Alberta and Canada wants to attract it to to all of Canada so there's a, there is some very good opportunities to work together with the the federal government in in that area.
0: Mhm. Yeah, I mean it's uh, it's really actually some of these areas are very exciting and help they are large scale potential diversification and pivots so it's uh, really important we've discussed on our podcast to be pursuing these sorts of areas so that uh, That's important. Well, we talked about the presidential debates at the outset, and of course, there is a possibility, depending upon how you handicap the election, that Joe Biden gets in. You've committed $1.5 billion plus a $6 billion loan guarantee to the Keystone XL pipeline. Biden said back in May that he would cancel that KXL project if he's elected. How do you view that risk, the the, the Joe Biden risk, in terms of the financing?
2: Well, I guess... First, first of all, we we committed and, and invested into KXL pipeline because the project proponent was was going to abandon it, and uh, we we see going forward it's difficult to imagine another major cross border pipeline project being being proposed under Bill C sixty nine. So it was the last remaining project that had been approved here in Canada but not constructed or under construction. So we. It was important to us in Alberta to ensure that that, uh, that go forward. On the U.S. side, you know, it's, I don't want to get into, uh, especially after watching the debates last night, I don't want to get <laughs> into predicting the outcome of the election and, and where this might go. But I, I would just point out that the way it, this should be looked at is that this is an important project on both sides of the border, both here in Canada and, and in the United States. There's jobs and economic benefits to both countries. But more importantly, there's a, a larger energy security issue here for both, both countries. We have an integrated energy market, particularly when you look at heavy oil. The refineries in the Gulf Coast uh, use, use heavy oil, which is Canada has an abundance of, and the other sources of, of supply for the heavy oil are, are, are in decline, Mexico, Venezuela. Mm-hmm. So the U.S. needs uh, access to our production as much as we have need access to the markets. Mm-hmm. But the final area and the one that, that gets sometimes gets forgotten about in all the, the, the heated rhetoric is the environmental partnership we have. That here in Canada, we're their best partner. We lead in ESG indicators. If their refineries need access to heavy, there's no better source to get it from from Canada in terms of uh, ESG and environmental environmentally responsibly produced production.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, the whole issue of energy security was a big one, oh, certainly ten years ago, maybe even up to six or seven. And with the rise of American shale oil and a whole bunch of things, uh, it sort of got lost a little bit. There's no question the Mexico and Venezuela, issue is a looming big one. Their declines in production are pretty notable. And that, that spells opportunity for Alberta and Canada as a safe and secure supplier. But, you know, further to your point about that, I'm still wondering what the Americans are thinking about this. I mean, is it even on the democratic policy radar, the whole energy security thing?
2: Well, if it's not, it should be. Because uh, they need energy to heat their homes to transport to run their economy. Their refineries need access to uh, crude. And if they're not going to get it from Canada, where are they going to get it from? they are got to get it from somewhere, and it's going to, to come from from other jurisdictions that have lower environmental standards. That's why I think it's so important to, to mm-hmm. continue to repeat that over and over, is that your countries are going to continue to have a use for oil and oil and gas every single credible forecast says that oil and gas will continue to dominate the energy mix for decades to come and if it doesn't come from canada it's going to come from somewhere else that's just a fact some may not like that fact but it it is a fact and i think it's that it's it's Hmm. the underpinning and it's the starting place for every single conversation on energy including the underpinning for every conversation on how we get to lowering emissions and how we potentially get to net zero. We have to start with the factual, uh, you have to ground your discussion in facts.
1: Well, Minister, and now that the U.S. is declining, uh, not growing in their production because of COVID, maybe they will consider energy security a little bit higher than they may have in the past. I wanted to, before we leave Market Access, talk about the TMX construction. How is it progressing? And, you know, do you expect this long-awaited pipeline will ultimately be completed
2: well, everything is encouraging coming from, from TMX. Everything that uh, we've seen has been very, very encouraging on where the construction is at. We keep it in touch quite regularly. And I think there, like a lot of the construction is, is already done uh, around the Edmonton area and in Alberta in general. They're uh, under construction in BC. It's progressing forward. Everything we've heard is that it will be in service on schedule. All the legal and regulatory hurdles have been completely cleared. There's no uh, legal challenges left. The Supreme Court cleared out the, the remaining and last legal challenge. So I think it's under under construction, and I, I'm quite confident that it will be, be concluded in, in a timely manner.
0: Let's talk about natural gas. It's our low-cost resource here. It's tremendously abundant. We know we've got the LNG project being constructed on the West Coast. Um, do you expect... LNG exports to grow, or you know, more broadly speaking. Actually, I know also your government's looking at natural gas policy in a a very holistic manner. Can you talk a little bit about all that?
2: Yeah, sure. Well, we do. We do expect uh, LNG exports to grow. It's uh, uh, natural gas is important. It's going to be needed if we want to want to produce hydrogen. If we want to move, uh, which all the analysts and forecasts are predicting a huge. World growing demand for hydrogen production, so we'll need uh, natural gas to produce, coupled with carbon capture and storage to produce blue hydrogen. And it's also important, and it'll be used, utilized in to uh, convert coal to gas for electricity generation. So there's a huge future for for natural gas, as well as a, a future in in petrochemical mm-hmm. development. So um, there is uh, definitely a growing growing opportunity for gas.
1: When I know the Alberta government is involved in this uh, industrial heartland hydrogen task force, we actually had a podcast a couple of yeah. weeks ago about hydrogen or in relation to that. Anything you can share about how the Alberta government is thinking about hydrogen at this point?
2: Well, we we certainly know it's got a, it's got a very successful future and you you're going to be seeing shortly a natural gas strategy rolled out by associate minister uh, Dale Nally and with myself and the and the premier involved in rolling out that strategy. Which is quite exciting because there really is a future for natural gas. You'll be hearing a lot more about it in the days and weeks ahead.
0: Mm-hmm. And then you also mentioned earlier uh, vanadium, lithium, you know, these are yep. the metals and minerals that we need for batteries and uh, other renewable energy, clean energy type projects. What are you thinking about that in terms of future potential?
2: Yeah, there's there's a huge potential there. Just uh, the last couple of weeks, we announced I rolled out that we're developing a mines and minerals strategy here in Alberta. We've always been known to be about oil and gas, but we also have mines and minerals. We have the resources here. We just haven't tapped into them, mm-hmm. and uh, we we know now that we we need to both to diversify and attract new investments. But because those minerals are needed, and lithium is a is a prime example. We uh, have an abundant access to the mineral in brines, in salt brines, a byproduct produced from from oil production, and uh, we've got the technology and the innovation and the processes to extract it from mm-hmm. those brines. So we've got a, a significant interest in near term investment in, into that. So we're working on a mining strategy and have struck uh, an advisory council to to help us develop the the types of regulations and processes to be uh, predictable mm-hmm. and certain and, and attract that investment so that we don't lose that opportunity here in Alberta.
0: Yeah, I always say to people, you know, the, it's not just about infrastructure as in the physical sense. To be able to pursue things like hydrogen or lithium or vanadium and all these other things, you need the regulatory we and do. fiscal yeah. in, infrastructure around it. We have a over a century of regulatory fiscal. Infrastructure around oil and gas, and uh, other things. and Imagine forestry as well. But I mean, these are new areas. So putting those sorts of things in place behind the scenes is really important to attractive capital.
2: Well, and it's my it's the area that I love most in in the energy regulation. So we'll be rolling out a new regulatory regime for geothermal. Mm. Oh, good. You're in in the fall, and and you're right. We don't have the the rules and regulations for for geothermal development in, in place, but we will have it in place very shortly. We'll be rolling out uh, that in the fall. And for mines and minerals, it's the same thing. We don't have a regulatory process for exploration and development of mineral resources, so we're, we'll be working on that in the fall and rolling out legislation in the spring. So you're right, it's, it's interesting. I find it interesting that Alberta, with all that potential, has not pursued that mm-hmm. in the past. But yeah. uh, we we certainly are now. We're we're pursuing it aggressively and putting everything we have into it because we see new opportunities that we want to capture.
1: Well, and I think uh, that has been a barrier to geothermal for sure, and not having that regulatory framework, and yeah. uh, obviously for the minerals as well. And you know, when I think about the world of minerals, there's a lot of countries that don't do it in an ESG friendly way. And I think we can really differentiate ourselves if we do it right to supply these minerals and have a, a supply chain that some of these technology companies and electric car companies can, you know, know is is ESG-friendly.
2: Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right.
1: All right, I wanted to quickly ask you about uh, carbon capture storage. I mean, we are, we are leaders. Uh, we've got our Quest project in the Heartlands, which sequesters carbon. We have the world's largest CO2 pipeline just started in June, and we have our first enhanced oil project using CO2 in central Alberta, However, we do have much greater potential and there are concerns that the policy here maybe doesn't support it as much as other places like the United States. Any thoughts in terms of CCS and how we can continue to grow this industry in Alberta and and help us meet those low carbon targets that many of the companies have set out and the federal government as well?
2: Alberta's led the way in carbon capture and storage. We're one of the first places in the world that put in in place a structure, a regulatory structure and the certainty on it on who owns the pore space. But we do see it's there's a lot of applications for it in producing blue hydrogen, producing hydrogen from natural gas, but the emissions from the natural gas are captured and, and sequestered, so it's, it becomes blue, which is, is non-emitting. So we see some enormous opportunities there, but we also have heard and we're seeing industry look towards uh, using carbon capture for uh, manufacturing. Heavy industry, things like cement production, so there's definitely opportunities. And it's the one thing that's pretty clear is there there isn't a path that I see to, that, that would get any place to, to net zero without carbon capture and storage. So we've uh, been leaders in it in Alberta, and we see it's going to be part of that solution going forward.
0: Yeah, in the United States, they've got these policies that are favorable to attracting capital to carbon capture and storage? Like, Jackie, what is it? Is it the Q45? Q45. Yeah.
1: yeah. Oh, the state.
0: yeah. yeah. <laughs> do you think we would implement policies like that here?
2: We're going to be pressuring the federal government to do that. I mean, if the federal government is serious about uh, helping the provinces, again, it's in the provincial jurisdiction on some of these, but if the federal government is serious about getting to, to net zero. They're going to have to look at carbon capture Utilization and storage, and having to be find ways to bring more investment in it. They're going to have to be serious about small modular reactors, as well as uh, hydrogen, which involves to get there. And Canada is going mm-hmm. to involve carbon capture and storage.
0: So when you say they they have to get serious, you know, part of that seriousness then is providing fiscal instruments, such as the Q45, which is a a, a tax-related instrument Mm -hmm. at the federal level to be able to attract capital and get get companies to come in here and invest the money?
2: Absolutely. We have to be competitive, both from uh, the uh, fiscal, Mm -hmm. uh, providing uh, favorable tax treatment, but we also have to provide a a, uh, regulatory environment that provides the certainty to attract investment. We have to have that. And I I think as we're, we're moving forward out of to, to economic recovery and how to attract some of this this new investment, the federal government's going to have to take a very serious look at Bill C-69 and the processes created under that and how that piece of legislation will actually be counterproductive to bringing in this some of this new investment.
1: Okay, so lots of potential future collaboration with the federal government to, to get all of these projects going. With that, we've come to the end of our time. We want to thank you, Minister, for joining our podcast and your leadership. Well,
2: thank you. Thank you so
1: much. If you enjoyed this podcast, please tell someone else about it and rate us on the app that you listen to. For more ideas and insights, visit arcenergyinstitute.com.